0: At our Leaders Away Day in December, one of the things that we spoke about was what are we going to preach on and teach on in this year? So December last year, looking forward to 2020. Where are we going? What are we feeling God was saying to us? What does He want us to do? And we decided that we didn't want to get into too much teaching straight up front before we had been to the Vineyard National Leaders Conference. Because we really believed that from that, at the NLC, God would speak to us and give us some things. And uh, prepare our hearts from that. Um, but one of the things that we had been feeling, especially Jill and I, was that we wanted to look at the book of Acts. Um, and if we're looking at um, the book of Acts, it's, it's the birth of the, of the church. It's about those people that encountered Jesus and then what did they do with it. Um, much like our strapline, encountering God, encountering people. And this is where we see it happening so much. So we didn't want to push ahead with any fixed plans um, or preaching rosters or anything like that until we had come back from the National Leaders' Conference. But the Book of Acts was there, was one of the things that we wanted to look at. So for the two weeks after the National Leaders' Conference, we had feedback, report back from those of us in the leadership team that were attending. And um, we shared what had impacted us. There were various things. But one of the things that really came through strongly, I think, for all of us was The teaching from John Mark Comer. He was one of the principal teachers there. And from his book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it's an amazing book. It really is an amazing book of being able to slow down. It just talks about slowing. And there's a whole lot of it. Jill touched on a lot of it, some of it last week. Um, And in the book he speaks about spiritual practices um, that have to a large extent been forgotten and not practiced in my opinion, in the Evangelical, Charismatic, Pentecostal churches. It's been practiced in some of the old mainline churches. It's still been practiced in those churches. But he speaks about how it's being awakened in the church. That, the, that God is awakening this in the church once again. Um, these spiritual practices. And actually, John Wright, John and JB lead the the vineyard in the UK and Ireland. John spoke about, about it at... Last year's NLC, he mentioned things about spiritual practices and slowing down, the things that he had been doing. And um, so God is stirring it up in in the church at this time. And not just in the vineyard, but across the, the body of Christ. When we speak to other pastors and leaders, more and more people are talking about this. So God is doing something. Some churches call them spiritual disciplines. But many of the younger generation today... Um, do not like the word discipline. They they get sort of upset with it. And uh, you're not allowed to discipline your children, you're not allowed to do so. Discipline is a sort of a no-no word for a lot of people. So spiritual practices is uh, a far better terminology to use. We call it spiritual practices. Now, Jill and I have been blessed over the last three years by the soul care retreats that we've gone to. Um, The soul care retreats were retreats that were put on by the Vineyard, UK and Ireland, senior pastors, and we're part of the first cohort, the first bunch to go and do it. And we've been incredibly blessed by it. Um, It's been such a blessing to us. It's where we've learnt many of these different spiritual practices, um, that we've been instructed in spiritual formation. So Jill has been far more disciplined than me in practicing them, Um, a lot of it because she has more time than me, and I don't have a real rhythm to my life where she can establish a fairly good rhythm. And do it, but I'm making an effort to be more intentional in practicing them. So, why am I telling you all of this? Um, today, I want to speak about going forward. Where are we going? Where's God taking us as a church? Looking at the things that I believe God wants to talk to us about as we go through our preaching and teaching. Looking at encountering God, encountering people, because that's the strap line, as Andy said for this church. It's what God gave me right in the beginning when we first came and took over the leadership of this church. And I was asking him, what do you want us to do? Where are you taking, what's important to this church? What is the thing that you want us to focus on? And it was encountering God, encountering people. He gave it to me then. And uh, it's just something that has continued to be in the church. He's never said change it. He's never said move on. He never said move away from it. Um, And if we want to be equipped and effective in sharing the love, the joy, the peace, the presence, the power, and the saving grace of God with the people that we encounter every day, which is the vision that I shared at the beginning, Um, it's the vision of the church, then we need to be encountering God first, just as Andy said with his testimony, encountering God, and then we can encounter people. So with this in mind, there are two things that we want to be teaching and preaching on as we go forward, and it's Spiritual formation and, and act, or acts and spiritual formation. That's what we really want to do. It's those two, those two things, acts and spiritual formation. And it's not spiritual acts, but the book of Acts, as found in the New Testament of the Bible. Spiritual formation is a term that includes spiritual practices. And we will expand on, on, on these things a little bit later. Um, not so much today, but as we go forward in the next couple of weeks. So over the next number of months, we're going to be looking at these two subjects. Um, and it's not going to be one week acts, one week spiritual practices, one week act. We'll just see how God leads us and the flow of things, how, how, how things happen. So it's not going to be a set thing. But those are the two primary things that we're going to be looking at. And you'll see as we go through the book of Acts, you'll see spiritual practices there taking place. And we'll be able to relate to what we're doing when we talk about spiritual practices. So today I'm going to look at an introduction to Acts. I'm going to speak for a very short time, and then going to finish off with two videos from the Bible Project. Some of you might be aware of the Bible Project, um, some of you might not, but they, it's an, they're an amazing two guys who set this up. They do incredible drawings and talk through Scripture, and they, give, they have a two-part overview of the book of Acts. And we're going to look at those two. Um, I'm going to finish off with those two because they can explain it far better than me standing up here. It's visual, you see it, you hear it, and you should take more of it in. And it's just an overview. So what I want to do today is really just look at the overview of the Book of Acts. Um, now the Book of Acts is the second account that Luke, the doctor, wrote to his friend Theophilus. Um, Luke wrote to Theophilus. In Luke 1, 1-4, we read... Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were our witnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That was the opening of the Gospel of Luke, opening of Acts, in Acts 1, 1 and 2, it says this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And that's that first, uh, that first verse is a verse I love that. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and and teach. And I love it that it's that way around. So often we live in an educational system where you get taught and then you're told to do. Because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did things and then he taught from it. And so oftentimes we get it the wrong way around. And uh, we need to be doing more and then teaching others. And that's what God wants us to do with the people that we encounter. When we encounter them, we can do the things of God, the practices that God has given to us in their midst, in their presence, praying for the sick. And when they see somebody healed, it gives you the opportunity to talk about healing and how God does that. As opposed to teaching on healing and then say, well, now we're going to do it. Jesus did it, and then he taught from it. And I really love that about him. That's, but that's another whole topic altogether. So, so Luke and Acts are actually, in some respects, just one continuation. Um... Now, biblical scholars are not sure sure who Theophilus was, but he was an important person. They're they're certain about that because of the way that Luke addressed him, most excellent Theophilus, he writes to him. And that was normally a way of um, addressing someone of high status and honor. You didn't address just your, your buddies in that way. This was somebody who he had a good relationship with. Now, Luke was a doctor, so he would have been fairly high up in society. And um, so he would have mixed with people in high society. And so Theophilus Theophilus could have been someone who was um, high up in government or whatever it was. But uh, we're not sure who he is, but he was an important person. And like Luke, he was a Gentile, not a Jew. He was more than likely living outside of Israel but in a city or nation where the gospel had been preached because he was a believer. So it would have been one of the areas, more than likely, in Asia Minor. He was from one of the cities or city-states there. An important man that was there. And that's who Luke was writing to, the two accounts. And from the gospel of Luke, we can tell that Luke was not present in Israel during the life and time of Jesus. But he did a thorough investigation into his life and wrote the gospel as a, a reassurance to Theophilus that what he had learned and what he believed is true. It was that reassurance. Now we know Luke wasn't there. He wasn't around. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples because he says, he says that in the beginning of Luke. Um, the Gospel of Luke was written about 30 years after Jesus had died, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. Now Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke with, uh, ends with the ascension Of Jesus to heaven and the book of Acts begins with a bit of a backtrack just goes back a little bit um, before Jesus ascends to heaven and there's a slight overlap and you can understand that because you know he had written the book of Luke sent that off to him to Theophilus and then there's a quick reminder of where his last writings ended and where he's picking up in his account that he had previously written now some biblical scholars believe that Luke Wrote Acts within two years of the writing of his gospel. The others believe it could be anything between six and ten years as well. And we don't know. Nobody dated. There weren't dates on these on these uh, the writings. But so there's anything between two years and ten years. It's in that period that uh, so there was a gap between the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Even the first half of Acts seems to be written from a point of view of Luke not being there. It's again accounts of what he's heard. He's studied them. He's, He's looked into it. And this is what he's found. And it's really only from about chapter 16 that you start to read of Luke in the first person, of being with Paul or being in the situation. So most of, well all of Luke and over half of Acts is written from a, perspective of having studied it and looked at it and found out and then written down and then he got involved then he got involved so over the next number of months we're going to be looking at the book of acts as well as spiritual formation the spiritual practices that uh, we want to try and help us each one of us to do it i don't know how many of you actually know what the different spiritual practices are how many of them that you you practice um, you know, you could be doing doing something and not even realizing that it's a spiritual practice or part of spiritual formation. But it's something that you've been taught and you've been doing it. And there'll be other exercises, other practices that you might know nothing about. And so we're going to move on to to these things over the next while and teach from that. But today, we want to look at the overview. And just looking at, at Acts, we're not going to go line by line, verse by verse through the book of Acts. We will try and do it systematically through from Acts 1 and work through to the end. But we might skip over some things. We're not going to go through every verse. So it would be a good idea, if you haven't read Acts in a while, is to read through the book of Acts. You can do it in a short while. It's not a difficult book to read. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. Um, so we'll, we'll work through it week by week, and see what God reveals to us and how he teaches us and encourages us. So I want to finish off by us watching the Bible Project's overview of Acts. There are two videos. They're eight minutes each, just over eight minutes, so it's a little bit of time to sit and watch, but it's far better than listening to my voice. You can hear somebody else giving it. So if you want to do that, I'm going to just turn the lights off so it gives us a better view. Thanks, Andy.
1: The Book of Acts. It's the second volume of a unified two-part work that today we call Luke-Acts. These were written by the same author, Luke, who was a traveling co-worker with Paul. This is clear from the book's introduction, where Luke says, I produced my first volume, that's the gospel, about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's giving a clue here as to what this book of Acts will be about. Volume 1 was about what Jesus began to do and to teach. Volume 2 will then be about what Jesus continued to do and teach, which leads to a really interesting point about the book's traditional but not original name, the Acts of the Apostles. While different apostles do appear in most of these stories, the only single character who unifies the whole story from beginning to end is Jesus himself, acting directly or through the spirit. And so the book would more accurately be named the Acts of Jesus and the Spirit. The book's introduction recounts how the risen Jesus spent some 40 days with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. This connects back to the story of Luke's gospel, where Jesus claimed that he was restoring God's kingdom over the world, beginning with Israel. So he called Israel to live under God's reign by following him, and he was enthroned as king when he gave up his life and then conquered death with his love. And so the book of Acts begins with the risen King Jesus instructing his disciples about life in his kingdom. So he promises that the Spirit will soon come and immerse them in his personal presence. And this fulfills one of the key hopes from the Old Testament prophets, that in the messianic kingdom, God's presence, his Spirit would come and take up residence among his people in a new temple and transform their hearts. And so Jesus says, when this happens, the Spirit will empower his disciples to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. From here, Jesus is taken up from their sight in a cloud. It's an image drawn from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. It shows how Jesus is now being enthroned as the Son of Man, who was vindicated after his suffering, and now shares in God's rule over the world. And so he promises that he will return one day. And so the main themes and the design of the book of Acts flow right out of this opening chapter. This is a story about Jesus leading his people by the Spirit to go out into the world and invite all nations to live under his reign. And so the story will begin with that message spreading in Jerusalem, and then into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria, full of non-Jewish people, and then from there out to all of the nations into the ends of the earth this video is just going to focus on the first half of the book so the Jerusalem focus section begins with Jesus' followers waiting until the Feast of Pentecost when all of these Jewish pilgrims from all over the ancient world were in the city and the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples as a great wind and something like flames appear over each person's head and together they start announcing and telling stories of God's mighty deeds and they're speaking in all of these languages that they didn't know before but all the people Gathered there, understand perfectly. Now, in order to see what Luke's emphasizing in this story, it's crucial to see the Old Testament roots of all of these images. So, first, the wind and the fire is a direct allusion to the stories about God's glorious, fiery presence filling the tabernacle and the temple. And it's also connected to the prophetic promises that God would come and live by His Spirit in the new temple of the Messianic kingdom. And so here in Acts, God's fiery presence comes to dwell, not in a building, but in his people. Luke is saying that the new temple promised by the prophets is Jesus's new covenant family, the people of Jesus, which connects to the second thing Luke is trying to say here. So the prophets promised that when God came to dwell in his new temple, he would reunify all the tribes of Israel under the messianic king and that the good news of God's reign would go out and be announced to the nations. Luke describes in detail the international multi-tribe makeup of all of the Israelites who were there at Pentecost and who responded to Peter's message. And so the apostles keep calling Israelites to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and thousands upon thousands respond, forming new communities of generosity and worship and celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now, in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts, only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor, which is really cool. But it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And this conflict between the two temples, that culminates in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's the first wave of persecution. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested, and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers. God sent them, including Jesus, and now his disciples. So the Jerusalem leaders are enraged. They murder Stephen, and they launch a wave of persecution against Jesus' followers that drives most of them from the city. But it has a paradoxical effect. Luke shows how this tragedy actually became the means by which Jesus' people are now sent out into Judea and Samaria. Now in this section, Luke has collected a diverse group of stories that all show how the mostly Jewish Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement. So first is the mission of Philip into Samaria. It's the land of Israel's hated enemies, and many of them come to follow Jesus. Next, we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul. He was the sworn enemy and persecutor of Jesus' followers until he personally met the risen Jesus, and he then became a passionate advocate on behalf of Jesus. Next is the story of Peter having a vision about how God doesn't consider non-Jewish people ritually impure or unworthy of joining Jesus' family. And so Peter, he's led by the Spirit into the house of a Roman soldier, just full of non-Jewish people, and they all respond to the good news about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit shows up powerfully upon them, just as he did to the Jewish disciples back in chapter 2. These themes all come together in the founding of the church in Antioch, the largest, most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. And Luke, he tells us that Barnabas, a Jewish leader from the Jerusalem church, went along with Paul to help lead. This church community. And so it became the first large multi ethnic church in history. It was where Jesus' followers were called Christians for the first time, and it's from here that the first international missionaries were sent out. And so we see Jesus' commission coming true, and this takes us into the rest of Luke's story. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Acts. The book of Acts. In the first video, we watched Luke open the book by showing us how the risen Jesus was exalted as the king of the world. He promised to send the Holy Spirit as his own personal presence to empower his followers to go out into the world and bear witness to the good news about his kingdom until he would return one day. And so the movement began in Jerusalem as the Spirit came and formed Jesus' followers into the new temple promised by the scriptural prophets. But this generated conflict with the leaders of Jerusalem, and so it led to the persecution of the Christians. But the Spirit transformed it into good. It actually became the means by which the originally Jewish Jesus communities were pushed outside Jerusalem to become a multi-ethnic international movement. And the flagship church of this diverse Jesus movement was in Antioch, the largest city in that part of the Roman Empire. So we left the story with Barnabas and Paul serving in the Antioch Church, and the Spirit prompts the church to send them on a missionary journey, which opens up a whole new section of the book. The story is about Paul and his co-workers traveling to different cities around the Roman Empire, announcing the good news that Jesus is king. The first mission is into the interior of what's called Asia Minor, found in modern Turkey, and it ends with an important meeting of the apostles back in Jerusalem. The second mission is through Asia Minor, and then into ancient Greece. And then the third mission is through that same territory again, and it concludes with Paul's journey all the way back to Jerusalem. Now, in recounting all these stories, Luke has highlighted a number of important themes by repeating them. So first is the continued mission to Israel. Whenever Paul enters a new city, he always goes first to the Jewish synagogue to share about the risen King Jesus and how he's forming a new multi-ethnic family of God. Now, most often, lots of people come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but some oppose Paul. Sometimes they even throw him out of town as a dangerous rebel who opposes the Torah and Jewish tradition. And this tension culminates after the first journey, leading to an important council in Jerusalem. So Paul discovers that there are some Jewish Christians in Antioch and they're claiming that unless non-Jewish people become Jewish by practicing circumcision, the Sabbath, obeying the kosher food laws, that they can't become part of Jesus' family. But Paul and Barnabas, they radically disagree. And so they take the debate to a leadership council in Jerusalem. Now there, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, they all show from the scriptures and from their experience that God's plan was always to include the nations within his covenant people. So they write a letter requiring non-Jewish Christians to stop participating in pagan temple sacrifices, but they don't require them to adopt an ethnically Jewish identity or obey the laws in the Torah. Now, this decision was groundbreaking for the history of the Jesus movement. Jesus, he's the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the risen king of all nations. And so one's membership among his people is not based on ethnic identity or following the laws of the Torah. It's based simply on trusting Jesus and then following his teachings. And it's this multi-ethnic reality of the Jesus movement that leads us to the next theme Luke wants us to see in the missionary journeys, namely the clash of cultures between the early Christians and the Greek and Roman world. Luke records multiple clashes in Philippi, Athens, and Ephesus. Paul goes and announces Jesus as the revelation of the one true God and as the king of the world who shows up all other gods and idols as powerless and futile. And his message is consistently viewed as subversive to the Roman way of life, and he gets accused of being a dangerous social revolutionary. These stories show how the multi-ethnic, monotheistic Jesus communities did not fit into any cultural boxes known to the Roman people. The ancient world had just never seen anything like them. And the Christians aroused more than just suspicion— Another theme Luke repeats is how Paul and the Christians are constantly being accused of rebellion, even treason, against Caesar, the Roman emperor. People heard Paul correctly. He was announcing that there's another king, Jesus. And they also correctly saw that the Christian way of life was a challenge to many Roman cultural values. But every time Paul gets arrested and interrogated before Roman officials, they don't see any threat and he's dismissed. These stories show us the paradox that the early church presented to the world. It was a Jewish messianic movement, but it was ethnically diverse, full of communities that treated men and women and rich and poor and slave and free all as equals. And they all gave their allegiance to King Jesus alone and no other god or king. And so their very existence, it turned upside down the core values of Roman culture, but the Christians posed no military threat because Jesus taught them to be people of peace. And so the only crime Paul and the Christians can be accused of is not conforming to the status quo. The book's final section returns the focus to Paul's witness spreading from Jerusalem to Rome. His final missionary journey ends back in Jerusalem, where his controversial reputation precedes him. He gets attacked by Jewish people who think that he's betrayed Israel, which attracts the attention of Roman soldiers who think Paul's a terrorist from Egypt starting a rebellion. And so he gets arrested. From here, Paul is put on trial, first before the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but then before a series of Roman leaders in Caesarea. There's Governor Felix, who puts Paul off, or the next governor, Festus, who eventually brings Paul before King Agrippa. He ends up in prison for years, even though at each trial the charges never stick to him because all he's doing is announcing that his hope in the resurrection has been fulfilled in King Jesus. This is hardly a crime, but at this point the Roman legal machine can't just turn him away and so Paul ends up appealing to Rome's highest court. Now, you would think that all this prison time would be a setback for Paul because his heartbeat is to be on the road starting new Jesus communities. But the Spirit orchestrates everything for good in this book. And so the imprisonment gives Paul time to have his most important apostolic letters written. And these become the way that his missionary legacy is carried on long after he dies. Eventually, Paul was transferred as a prisoner to Rome. And after a terrifying near-death voyage across the Mediterranean, Paul ends up in house arrest in Rome, awaiting his delayed trial. And so he's able to host, in quite a nice house, regular meetings that reach Jews and Gentiles. And the book's final words are about how Paul is announcing the kingdom of God and boldly teaching all about the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, totally unhindered, all happening right under Caesar's nose in Rome. The unified work of Luke acts, it does so much more than give us a history of Jesus and the early church. He's showing how the kingdom of God came on earth as in heaven through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through the coming of his spirit, to empower the church to bear witness from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And as Luke has told the story, he's given us scores of example of what faithfulness to King Jesus looks like. It looks like sharing the good news of the risen King Jesus in word and in action. It means forming diverse Jesus communities where people of all kinds come together, where they're treated equally and give allegiance to King Jesus and live by his teachings. And all of this is done by trusting in the power and the guidance of the Spirit to lead the way forward. And that's what the book of Acts is all about.
0: far better explanation than what I could give. <laughs> and if you couldn't see some of the writing, you can go online. Just go to the thebibleproject.com and you can see all of those. You can go and look at them and uh, you can watch it on, 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 on your computer. They're just amazing teachings. It's really it's great having it. There's picture and the cross-references, all of it. And as I said, all po- comes back to encountering God encountering people. If we want to encounter people, we need to be encountering God first. So that's what we're going to be heading into going forward. This is where we're going um, as a church, really, to to do that. And um, the way I finish off those things, those four points of what it's all about, Luke and Acts, is what we want to see happening in our midst of uh, encountering God, encountering people, touching the lives of those around us, because we're called to do that, to go into... All nations. Um, and as I said a couple of weeks back, here in this, in this city, in this town, in this city, we've got all the nations here. I mean, just in our, in our church, we have a diverse number of nations in this church. And so going to all nations, we don't have to even leave our shores to go and touch the lives of people of different nations. Um, and so we have this great opportunity. And I really believe that's where God wants us to be. We need to be out there touching the lives of those that do not know Jesus. That's why he came. He came that all could be saved. All could be saved. And our responsibility in that is to share the love of Jesus. Share the love of God. To live out the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit does the saving. It's not our job to save people. We can't do that. It's our job to share what God has done in our lives how we got saved, how we encountered Jesus, how we encountered God, and share that with other people and be praying for them and loving on them and caring for them, that they will experience the same love and joy that we've experienced as we've come into the presence of God and received Jesus as Lord and Savior. So that's where we're going to going forward. I trust that excites you. And uh, so get reading in the book of Acts and uh, read it and reread it, and just ask God to speak to you through it. And one of the things we will be looking at, one of the spiritual practices will be Lectio Divina, how to read through Scripture and get God to show you um, things in it that you might not have seen before. It's one of the spiritual practices we will teach on, amongst many other things. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for... The people that you have placed in this world even right now, Father, who love you who are passionate about you and have a heart to see others come to know you thank you for the people that you've placed in this church that have a heart to see people's lives changed by your love, your joy your peace for them to come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that should be in everyone's heart as we've come to know you our desire should be for others to come to know you as well. What the blessings that we've received, the gifts we've received from you, we receive them freely so that we can give them away freely. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for those who you've given that have a creative bent, that could describe the whole book, book in, in this wonderful visual presentation, Lord. We just thank you for them and we just pray your blessing upon the Bible Project and those that are involved with that. Bless them, Lord God, as they help people to understand your word in a wonderful and simplistic way. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen.